Corinthians chapter 13 today. Uh, we're we're uh, on, on week three of a four-week study of spiritual gifts, the gifts that the Spirit gives. And so there are these three overarching points that I pointed out week one. I doubled down on it week two, and so I'm going to triple down on it in week three. Um, I, there's a lot more explanation uh, in week one if you want to know more about what I'm about to say, but this will give you just an overview quickly. Number one, you have a gift. You have a gift, the person in your seat, some of you feel like uh, you're with your spouse and you feel like they're super gifted and maybe you not so much. Maybe you've got friends that are in your life group and, and you're like, man, they're super gifted. I don't know where my gift is. Well, know this, you have been given a gift. Every person in this room, you have been gifted. It's an assumption. First Peter 4.10 4, says, as each has received a gift, as each. That means we've all received one. First Corinthians 12.7, it says that each one of us has a manifestation of the spirit in our lives, each one. But then number two, your gift is not about you. Your gift is not about you. So, Think about that for a second. For some of you, you have a gift, but you're exercising it for your own fame and glory. And no, your gift is not about you. It's never been about you. First Peter 4.10, the second part of that says that each one has been given a gift to serve others. That your gift is not about you, but is about others and how you can use it to build up the body of Christ. First uh, Corinthians 12, seven talks about that very thing when it says that this manifestation of the spirit that's been poured out on you is for the common good, the common good. And that means that there is a common agenda that the body of Christ has. It is God's agenda, not your own agenda. And then number three, your gift displays the power of God. Your giftedness, when you are using the spiritual gift that God has given you, you are literally displaying the power of God. That The Greek word for power is dunamis, where we get dynamite. And remember, I, I, I've told you this the last couple of weeks, that if you are living in your giftedness and you're displaying that gift to the world, you're literally an explosion waiting to happen. An explosion, you explode on the scene, we say at the end of every service, wherever we go, the kingdom goes with us. And so you are bringing the kingdom into every situation. And so last week we saw that, that now as a collective, that we are all together, these uh, dunamis, these little uh, sticks of dynamite. And when we come together, we're working together, that we actually, man, we'll make a crater in Montgomery County, right? The explosion will be so massive that, that people won't know what to do. They'll be calling 911 because of the explosion of the kingdom of God on the scene. And remember last week we talked about this whole idea that the smallest of gifts, the one that seems so, uh, so minute are actually indispensable. I just wanted to thank those of you last week as I told the story about, uh, first of all, it's a key fob, not a key remote, right? Thank you for pointing that out to me, so many of you. Um, also, thank you for those of you that gave me very helpful tips on what could have solved my problem when I was stranded that day. So wish you had been with me, um, but you weren't. But thank you um, that you so lovingly told me what I could do in the future, so I appreciate it. Um, but, but, but what we saw is the smallest gift, that battery, if it doesn't work, the truck won't run. And in the same way, in the body of Christ, if you call restoration your church home and you are not walking in your giftedness, we are incomplete. That means that we're not working at full capacity. And so that is not, I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm saying get in the game. We need you. Amen. That every person is needed if we are gonna move the ball down the court. Every person is needed. If we, are, if we wanna see our community transformed, it's gonna be because you, the person in your seat, have identified your giftedness and are living into it. Amen. Again, we say it at the end of the service not for your fame and glory, but for his fame and glory. Amen. Okay, so at the end of the chapter last week, 1 Corinthians 12, 31, let me just remind you, it says, eagerly desire the greater gifts, 
right? So we're supposed to eagerly desire giftedness, eagerly desire. And remember I said, let's pursue it and let's put it into practice. So let's pursue the gifts that we know God has put in front of us. And remember, there was a list in the first half of chapter 12. There's also a list in Romans 12. That's not the same list. There's another list in Ephesians 4. Again, all different lists. We identified at least 21 gifts. You can go back to listen uh, to that message two weeks ago. But out of those 21 gifts, when God says, this is your gift, pursue it and practice it. So important. But... He ends it with saying, now I will show you what? The most excellent way. Not a more excellent way. Not, hey, this is a little bit better way. Your way's fine, but maybe a little better way. No, the most excellent way. So this, what we're about to see today in 1 Corinthians 13 is the way to live out the gifts in their fullest. Does that make you want to lean forward? Man, I want to know how to do this. So what we'll see in 1 Corinthians 13 is that any gift from God must be practiced in the context of love or it's useless. It must be exercised in the context of love or it's useless. Let me say it another way. Love is the thing that gives weight to any gift. So think about your gift as some receptacle and it's gotta be filled up with love or it's actually useless. So I would say that one of the indictments on the American church is not that we don't have gifts, but that we don't love people. If you listen to our culture, the reason they would say churches are relevant today is because we're judgmental people because we're, we're opinionated and not in a good way, that we're constantly talking at people and not talking with people. And so know this, your giftedness that is not lived out in the context of love is worthless. There's no weight to it. But love is a thing that gives weight to any gift. It settles it down. It keeps it from being noisy and worthless. One man put it this way. He said, people of little religion are always noisy. I would probably take out the word little. People of religion are always noisy. Um, I've been very public with you. I hate religious talk. I hate people that use really hyper-spiritual overspeak. I'm like, just talk to me like a real person, right? So people of, of little religion are always noisy he who has not the love of God and man filling his heart is like an empty wagon coming violently down a hill. It makes great noise because there's nothing in it. It's just kind of clanging out of control. Um, I, I, was, I, I experienced this on full display yesterday. Um, I got in a wagon and rode down a hill just to see. No, I didn't, but uh, I, I went to Home Depot um, to pick up uh, some bags of salt for our water softener at home, and they come in 40-pound bags, and so um, I wasn't going to, I was going to get three bags, and I mean, I'm, you know, a beast, but I, I, I didn't feel like that I could carry those all three from back to front, so I got a cart. Well, so I started pushing the cart toward the back, and it was the noisiest cart I mean, it was so noisy as I'm pushing it that I'm feeling like I need to apologize to people as I'm walking by. I feel like every eye was on me and I'm walking and I'm just looking down like, I am so sorry. Like, it's not my fault that they don't service their carts, but I mean, it's just like clanging. It's so loud. And so I get to the back, I find these bags of salt and I put these three bags on and I turned and started pushing it back and I noticed how quiet the cart was. That as soon as weight was put on it, I guess the wheels now are, are really pushing toward the ground. Gravity took over. And now here's all I could think. This cart is fulfilling its purpose. And because it's filling its purpose, it's no longer noisy and clangy. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Hello. I'm like, that's a great illustration. I'm using that, right? Because you and me know this. If you are not living into your purpose, if you're not living fully in what God has made you to be and do, that you're really just a bunch of noise. That's hard to hear, right? The greatest commandment 
Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, someone asked him, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, or 1A is love God. 1B is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love, love God, love people. And he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know what the assumption is? You love yourself a lot. That all of us are motivated by self. That we are gonna gravitate towards self. It's who we are in the natural. We don't gravitate toward holiness. We don't gravitate toward the spirit. We gravitate toward self, selfishness, self-protective nature. So as we think about love today, what I wanna remind you is that when God speaks, he always speaks from a place of love. Now, love may sound like conviction, right? Sometimes we need a little tough love, right? But remember, Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation and conviction sometimes feel pretty similar, right? But know this, God will never condemn you in his language. His language is love. And so he may convict you. Maybe this morning you're gonna feel, man, all is not right in my world. That's good because that's true. We're all on a journey. And maybe this morning you'll feel convicted that you need to press in to something new. That's a good thing. But here's what we know. God is not gonna shame you. He's not gonna make you feel ashamed to follow him. I'm so ashamed of my past, so I'm gonna follow Jesus. He's not gonna shame you into the kingdom. He's not gonna guilt you into the kingdom. In fact, there is reverential fear, and I I liken it to uh, the fear of electricity, right? None of us would say, Um, we would say we're afraid of electricity, but you've got electricity hanging over your head right now and you're not like, you know, we don't think about it. But here's what we have. We have a healthy reverence for electricity. We're not gonna stick our tongue in a light socket. (laughs) Hopefully. That is reverential fear. We know of its power and so we know what to do and what not to do. And in the same way, God wants you to have a reverential fear of him, but he doesn't want you to walk around like this. Why? Because he speaks in language of love. He is for you. He wants to pull you in close to him. So let's look at these verses. Starting in verse one, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. So he opens this section with tongues. Tongues was the last on his list when he was speaking of spiritual gifts, but now he addresses it first. So what does that tell us? This was probably a problem in Corinth that they had elevated the gift of tongues to be the most important gift. And and now he's starting with that. So just a little whetting of the appetite. I'm gonna talk at length about prophecy and tongues next week. So I'm not gonna say everything there is to say about tongues today, but I do wanna point out a couple of things. So first, he says the the tongues of men or of angels. What that tells us is there are two different types of tongues that he's talking about. We see in the book of Acts, the tongues of men, they're different languages. They were filled with the spirit and they went out and they were speaking and people were saying, hey, I know that. I know that language. They're speaking my language. And then there are the tongues of angels, which would be a heavenly language. It's what is referred to in many of our faith circles, a prayer language. This is a language that is only understood by the Spirit, by Jesus, by God, by the Trinity. It's a, it's a language that's spoken that, we, that man cannot understand. So we'll get into more of that next week. But regardless, he says that while tongues are a gift given to man by the Spirit, if it's not bathed in love, it's just noise. He says it is a a clanging gong, a resounding cymbal, that it is a wagon running down a hill that is empty and just making a bunch of noise. So the first thing we see, this whole idea of tongues that if not used 
from a place of love is pointless. But the second thing that I thought about is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. That's 1 Corinthians 4.20. Meaning, talk is cheap, y'all. That for a lot of us, we, we talk a good game, right? That, that, that we get all the spiritual platitudes and, and at some point we said yes to Jesus and so we can say all of the really hyper-religious phrases, but the fruit of our life doesn't point to Jesus. Amen. And so if you speak in a religious tongue, but you don't have love, then I don't really know what you're doing. I mean, so I'm, I'm five foot five with the hair and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, I've played basketball for a lot of years and here's what I could pretty much, unless I'm playing like preteen kids, I'm always gonna be the smallest person on the court. And so my number one skill is my mouth. So I am constantly just chattering talking trash, trying to, trying to get somebody that's six foot three to shoot threes, right? Because I know if they back me down, it's over. And so then I'll talk them up. If they back me down, oh yeah, you're awesome. You can back down a five foot five guy, right? Bam, 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 just always talking, right? It's all I got. At this age, it's literally all I got. Because here's the truth of the matter. I've lost a quick first step. So I'm probably not gonna drive by him. Hitting a shot, maybe, probably not. So, so if you can't knock down a shot and you can't get past him, all you got is talk at that point. <laughs> and guess what? It's cheap. So I'll leave the gym and they all talk about, man, he was probably good at some point, right? <laughs> it's hurtful. But it's probably true. But, but here's the truth of the matter. For a lot of us, that really kind of defines your walk. You can talk a good game. You can slap the label of Christian on your life. But then what happens is people actually look at the product of your life and they're like, if that's what following Jesus is, I want no part of it. Whether it be in your marriage, whether it be in your neighborhood, whether it be uh, in your workplace, whether it be on social media, I mean, you just fill in the blank that we are called to lead from a place of love. And if you don't, he's saying here, it's a huge problem. Verse two, he addresses three more gifts. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not love, I am nothing. So he mentions three more gifts, prophecy, knowledge, faith. And he's saying to the church again, that if your defining characteristics are walking in the gifts, but the output is not love, then you're nothing. Yes, we're called, he says at the end of the chapter, man, pursue those gifts. We wanna be people that are living into everything that God wants to give us. But at the end of the day, if the output of your life is not love, what are you really doing? And there are, are some people that have the gift of prophecy, that have the gift of words of knowledge or words of wisdom or, or, or have faith. But listen, if you're using it to lord over people, if you feel like that God's placed a word on your heart for somebody, but the word on the heart is leveled down at them, if somehow you have elevated yourself that, man, I hope people get up on my level at some point, man, that is not from a place of love. And we'll see more of it in just a moment. Because back to point number two, your gift is not about you. It's not about you. God is for you, but he's not about you. He's given you a gift on loan to bring him glory. He's, he's given these gifts to display his power, not for you to display yours. Amen. Okay, verse three. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I have nothing. He talks about the gifts of giving and the gifts of sacrifice. So he says, listen, I mean, guys, we're the most affluent nation on the planet. 
And specifically in Montgomery County, I mean, we're an affluent bunch, right? We, we have a lot of disposable income. And so, man, we're called, man, generosity is, is a gift that we need to exercise, right? And so um, he, he says, listen, man, giving is important, but, but if you're giving and you don't have love, don't give. If you're giving and you don't have love, don't give. Know this, I trust God's ability to provide more than I trust your willingness to give. Okay, so just know that, that man, uh, by the way, I want you to give, okay? And I want you to give generously. So hear my heart in this. But here's, here's it's gotta be from a motivation of love. Because if it's not from a motivation of love, God's not gonna bless it. And so he says, listen, I mean, we love to throw money at stuff, right? To, to, to make the problem go away. And I would say, you know, and, and he talks about serving and sacrificing here. I mean, we've got 12 partner ministries and, and for all of us, Jesus is a great idea. It's like, yeah, just tell me, man, tell me where I can jump in. And then we say, well, you can jump in here. Oh, well, and then we have a laundry list of why we can't get involved. But here, let me write a check for it. Man, we gotta get our hands dirty to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And listen, I'm not trying to guilt you into anything. This is between you and Jesus. So right now you may feel some conviction. That is conviction, not condemnation. Amen. It says, listen, I don't want your money. I want your heart. It's a motivation that needs to come from a place of love, from compassion. He says, if I surrender my body, and one version says, if I surrender my body to the flames. I mean, this is talking about martyrdom, right? That I, that, but, but if we are self-sacrificing, but we're self-sacrificing as we wave our hands in the air and say, hey, I'm really self-sacrificing here, right? We do that in marriage, don't we? I mean, I'll do it, babe. It's a lot, but I'll do it. <laughs> we cleaned out the garage yesterday. And I'm like, I mean, she goes, do you want to help me clean out the garage? I'm like, want to? I mean, does anybody really want to clean out the garage? I mean, I'll do it. If, if we don't lead from a place of love, it's worthless. So now Paul's going to define love in the next few verses um, and so I think it's important for us to understand uh, there are four kinds of love uh, that uh, in the Greek there is eros love. Eros is where we get our word erotic, which would be a sexual kind of love. Um, phileo would be a brotherly kind of love. Um, Philadelphia is known as the city of brotherly love. Um, they have the most hateful fans in the NFL. Um, uh, Cowboys play them tomorrow night and I hope that they lose by 30, right? But they should probably change the name of the city, come to think of it, uh, phileo, brotherly love. But, but uh, when we think about phileo, this whole idea of, hey, I love you, bro. You've got close friends that you're like, man, I've got a brotherly kind of love for a lot of people. There's storge, which would be familiar, familial love. So you're born into it. You have no choice. You have to love your family, right? And so, and so that familial kind of love, and then there's agape. Agape is a sacrificial love. It's a love in spite of. It's a fully committed love. And it's, it's actually a love that says, I don't love you because you've done something, or I don't love you if you'll do something. I actually love you in spite of who you are. I love you in spite of. It's completely unconditional, committed love. And this is the love that he's gonna describe here. And so what does this love look like? He's gonna make a list. Paul loves lists, by the way. Um, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's a pretty good list. If we lived out these characteristics of love, it would probably be life-changing for all of us. So think about this list in the context of living in your giftedness. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So, patient, kind, not envious, boastful, proud. It doesn't dishonor. It doesn't elevate self. It doesn't get angry, keep score. It doesn't delight in unrighteousness, but take joy, takes joy in the truth. This agape love is protective, truthful, trusting, hopeful, perseverant. Okay, so when I read this list, just keeping it real with y'all, I'd realized something super important. <laughs> I've never really loved anyone in my life. I mean, I read this list. Does anybody else just, do, do you find yourself? I mean, if you were gonna take a test right now and go through those characteristics, how many of those characteristics on a daily basis would you say, check, check, got it, got it, got it? I mean, realistically, I'm like, fail, uh-uh. I mean, I, I, I couldn't get past the first one. Love is patient. I'm the most impatient person on the planet. I mean, I just find myself just constantly like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Impatient. I was having a conversation after second service last week with a couple and uh, they were doing some work back in the sound booth. This was between second and third service and they stopped the music that was in the room. And as I'm talking to them, I heard the music stop and I immediately am like, why did the music stop? I wonder why the music, and then while I'm talking to them, I start looking around the room like, and I'm looking back like, what is, what are they doing? I don't know what they're doing. I wonder what they're doing right now. And just getting just kind of bent out of shape. And then the music started again. I'm like, Whew. and I had to say, hey, I'm sorry, you know. And, but, but here's the thing. That was so dishonoring in that moment because I'm just so impatient that things have to work exactly the way that I think they need to work at the exact moment that I need them to work. Is anybody else like that at all? Or is it just me? Thank you for three honest people, four honest people. Oh, now everybody's like <laughs> bandwagoners. Okay, so yeah. And here's what's worse. It's not even an exhaustive list. I'm failing in most of them and it's not even an exhaustive list. There are more characteristics of love. But, but here's what I know. My heart gravitates toward the opposite of all of these. You know, I mean, know this, your heart does not naturally gravitate toward Jesus. It doesn't naturally gravitate toward holiness. It doesn't naturally gravitate toward the fruit of the spirit. No, it naturally gravitates toward self. It naturally gravitates toward me getting mine in the moment that I need it. And the problem is I'm impatient, I'm unkind, more times than I want to admit, I'm envious of other people's successes. I don't want to be. I, I, I want to be for everybody, but I find myself in my heart sometimes being jealous that somebody got something that I thought I should have gotten. Does anybody ever feel that way? I'm proud of my guests, sometimes too proud. I'm too quick to elevate myself. <laughs> I'm a scorekeeper. Anybody else a scorekeeper? Man, ju just keep it in the confines of marriage. Do you keep score? Yeah, I mean, man, we have, these, we have these arguments and I say, I forgive you and I forgive you, but in my mind, I've written down what you've done to offend me. And there's a really good chance it's coming up again. Even as a joking little sarcastic, hey, remember the time you... True story, I was, I was uh, on my phone last night and a memory popped up of the Grand Canyon. Um, <laughs> and what popped up was a video that Josh made. And there's a point in the video where he's behind me and, and, and he's showing me, you know, slogging up the side of the Grand Canyon. I'm 53 years old, Josh. <laughs> then he turns and the camera goes on him and he rolls his eyes. But I don't keep score. It's not a big deal. I saved your 
it's not a big deal. You did save my life. Thank you for reminding me of that. You, you're keeping score, right? So, we got some stuff to work out. See me over there. Keep the music playing. We're going to talk, all right? So, So love always protects. I'm great at protecting, but it's usually myself. Are we not all kind of self-protective at times? Protecting our emotions, protecting our turf. Um, so in short, I'm a mess, right? I just, I just read this list and I'm like, this is love. And by this definition, I am failing miserably. And he says, if you don't have love, you've got nothing. And so I look at it, I'm like, oh, what do I got? So Paul's really trying to get to something here that I think we all need to get. So he's got another list in Galatians 5, and 23, the characteristics, the fruit of the spirit. He says the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These nine characteristics, not an exhaustive list, but what's the first on the list? Love. And probably all the other ones are gonna kind of move up underneath that to support love. And here's what gives me hope. I can't be loving by my definition. I'm gonna fail every single time. And here's the good news. When you said yes to Jesus, when I said yes to Jesus, I received these characteristics. I received all the love I'll ever need. And so that's what tells me that if I'm not in the secret place, then I'm always gonna gravitate toward myself. But when I'm in the secret place, when I'm asking Jesus for my marching orders for the day, when I'm asking him about every situation, that is the best shot I have for him to activate in me what I need for the moment ahead of me. Because I can't love. I read the list. Not this guy. But when the spirit is active in me, I become the most loving person there is, not because of me, but because of the spirit of God in me. It's a difference between natural and more than natural, supernatural. Wouldn't you love to live in supernatural love? What would it be like, uh, men, for you to to say, man, I'm gonna get in the secret place and I'm gonna begin to ask God to just scrape off all the junk in me and for two weeks from now, for your wife to come to you and say, hey, listen, not a big deal. I've never felt more loved by you than I have over the last two weeks. What would that be like? Some of you are like, that sounds impossible. And you know what? Maybe it's because you've never spent enough time in the secret place for it to matter. What if he wants to change the way you think about the world so that when things happen, you're responsive from him and not for him? We hear this phrase, man, I'm gonna live for Jesus. Well, that's a great thought, but living for Jesus, the connotation there is, I'm gonna figure out what I wanna do and then I'm gonna go do it and ask God to bless it. We don't need anybody else living for Jesus. We need everyone to live from him, to receive from him everything he wants to give us, to live from a place, from a center of Jesus, allow him to fill us up and then let that overflow into the world. It's a different way to live because I think what you'll find is God's agenda is so often different from yours. His answer is so often different from yours. The way he wants to change the world is so often counterintuitive and different from yours. And it's in the secret place that we begin to see that. What does that mean? It means we gotta be still, be quiet, sit in his presence, ask him questions, and then just sit and wait. Jesus, what do you want to say right now? What do you want to say to me? And then write down what we hear. For some of you, that alone will change your life forever. To be responsive to the voice of God. Because if you don't, 
you're a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You are profitless. Whatever you're bringing is worth nothing. That's hard to hear, but Jesus said it, remember? John 15, 5, when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that remains in me, if you remain in me, if you will sit and say, I am not moving, I am going to sit here and listen until you speak. He who remains in me will do what? Bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You've got nothing to offer the kingdom of God apart from Jesus. Man, that is in direct opposition to the American gospel. Because the American gospel says, hey, you've got what it takes. Bring Jesus in. Stir it up a little. You'll be a better version of yourself. Know this. A better version of yourself is not what the world needs. Jesus is what the world needs. And he will activate in you that thing that will change your life forever. By the way, if you've been here very, lo very long, I'm kind of a broken record, right? So these are probably not new concepts, but you need to hear it. Because we wanna change the world, y'all. We wanna be that explosion on the scene. And man, God's doing some really cool stuff. I could tell you stories about people in our body that are little sticks of dynamite in, in tough situations. But man, if we really wanna see God explode on the scene in a supernatural, a more than natural way, each and every one of us will take personal responsibility. Amen. And we'll start living from him and not for him. Verse eight, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. And so the first thing he says is love never fails. Never, never. I was taught in a marriage uh, conference, like don't say never or always, right? So that's free advice. In your marriage, don't say you never do this or you always do that. Recipe for disciple. No, nobody ever never does something or always does something. But most, most of the time, right? <laughs> so say that, most of the time. But here's what we know for sure. Love never fails, never. This agape love, the love of God never fails. And then he says, prophecies will cease, tongues will stop at some point, knowledge will pass away. What is he saying? He's saying that these gifts have a shelf life. Why? Here's why. Because one day we'll be in the presence of Jesus. So know this. One day you'll be in the presence of Jesus. You won't need prophecy about Jesus because Jesus will be in front of you. So that means prophecy sees because he's the fulfillment of all prophecy right? Words of knowledge will cease because we will be in the presence of all knowledge. That is Jesus. So this is speaking uh, to the future coming, what we talked about in Revelation over the last year. This is speaking of a day when we will be face to face with Jesus. Tongues will stop because we will no longer need a heavenly prayer language or to speak in other languages because we will have a common language in heaven because we'll be with Jesus. So there are some streams of faith that would point to this verse specifically in saying that all of the sign gifts ceased with the apostles, that when the apostles died, um, these gifts died with them. The problem is he doesn't say that here. So it, it's, it's hard to draw an assumption from something that's not said. Because it doesn't say that they are going to cease when the apostles are just that someday they will cease. But then we see in verse nine, look at what it says. In verse nine, it says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. So it's giving us some insight into what he's talking about. He's saying we prophesy in part because you and I don't know the full scope of anything. Here's what we know. We live in a broken world. When we, when you said yes to Jesus, when I said yes to Jesus, we were restored, made complete, made new. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So you and I are now new if we said yes to Jesus. Here's the problem. The world's still broken. 
So we are restored people living in brokenness. And so prophecy, words of knowledge, tongues, all of these gifts we're taking into brokenness. So the world will be broken until when? Until Jesus returns. When Jesus returns, all things will be made new. That was in Revelation 22, just a few weeks ago. There will be a day when all things will be made new. There will be no more sickness, cancer. Uh, there will be no more COVID. There will be no more any of it, no more tears. Jesus will come and he will restore all things. It's the now and not yet. That's where we live today. So when he says, hey, we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, we'll be made complete because that's when Jesus is returning. So you take that context back into verse eight. That's what he's saying. Listen, prophecy will cease when Jesus comes. Tongues will cease when Jesus comes. Knowledge and wisdom will cease when Jesus comes. He is the completion of all things. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So clearly this is a call to spiritual maturity. And so let me be clear, the church in the U.S. looks a lot like the church in Corinth. Here's how. For a larger percentage than we want to admit in this room, at some point in your life, you prayed a prayer to follow Jesus. For a lot of you, it was at an event Maybe you went to church camp as a 14-year-old kid and you walked down an aisle with two other of your friends, you were all holding hands and uh, you wept together down at the altar and you swayed back and forth to friends of friends forever and it was six flags over Jesus and you're like, woo, I'll follow Jesus to the ends of the earth. And then three weeks later, it was gone and you've never recovered it since, but the church has told you that, oh, well, you're good, you're still going to heaven. Just be a better version of yourself. Try harder, work harder. Guys, I'm sorry, but that's not really what the Bible says. It's not what the words of Jesus said. Now we have eternal security in Jesus, but also we have to bear fruit as followers of Jesus. So we can't just slap Christian on things and call it good. And he's saying it here, he's like, hey, listen, when I was a child, I talk like a child, I walk like a child. I mean, when I was a child, I was a child. What do we know? What is the number one thing we know about kids? They're selfish. They are selfish. Again, we cleaned out the garage yesterday. The grandkids were over. So we let them play outside. They are selfish. <laughs> Everything they wanted to grab, they wanted to play with. What I found out is I'm selfish. Because I didn't want them to do what they wanted to do. I wanted them to do what I wanted them to do, right? And so we were in a battle of wills the entire day. But they're five and three. I'm 54. And here's the point. Man, when I became an adult, I had to put away childish ways. I'm still waiting on that. Right, I mean, and, and, and for you as a follower of Jesus, it's time to put away childish ways. It's time to commit to growing up and maturing in your faith and maturing in your walk with Jesus. And again, it starts in the secret place. It starts saying, listen, Jesus, it's the most important relationship in my life. I will not miss it. I'm gonna sit and I'm gonna soak and I'm gonna wait until you speak because I know that I'm not there yet. And the problem is the kingdom of God is being damaged daily by immature people that are calling themselves followers of Jesus and calling it good, but not living a life that's worthy of the calling of Jesus. That's not a shame statement. It's just a fact. And again, this is not condemnation. This is for us to wake up and recognize it's a call to spiritual maturity. And it's a call to love. Remember, this is all in the context of love. 
So what that means is today you're going to leave here, you're going to go to brunch or you're going to go to lunch and some waiter or waitress is not going to meet your needs, your sensitive palate. Your steak's going to be undercooked or your chicken's going to be a little tough and when the check comes, you're going to be like 5%. And you're going to write at the bottom, Jesus loves you, Right? Dude, leave that off. If you're going to leave 5%, leave Jesus out of it, all right? We should be the most generous people on the planet, y'all. You don't know what wait staff are going through. Usually, your food, it's not their fault. It's the cook's fault. And we need to love them radically. Don't tip under 30% today. And then you can write, Jesus loves you on the bottom. But, but seriously, we need to be marked by generosity because generosity is love in action. And we're holding people to ridiculous standards that we don't live up to. And you know what that is? It's immaturity. It's self-seeking. It's judgment. And so here's the deal. No better, do better. Now you're exposed and you have one or two choices. You can live it or deny it. But I'm going to every restaurant today and asking every waiter. <laughs> do you see it, guys? I mean, there, there's maturity that takes root when it's no longer our talk, but it's our love and action. Then when people look at your life, you know, just ask yourself the question in your interactions with people, do they go away feeling more loved? Like in your conversations, if you tend to gossip, if you tend to, uh, you know, maybe you share it as a prayer request. I don't know, you do you. But um, when people leave your presence, do they feel loved and encouraged? Do they, do they feel like, oh, I can, I can, I have hope. Or do they feel a little bit dirty? They feel like they got to go pray and clean up whatever just happened. That's on us as far as Jesus. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I acted like a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish ways. It's time. It's time. You know what? There's somebody in the room right now, I'm sure, that doesn't know Jesus and they're probably amening on the inside because they've been so hurt by people that call themselves Christians. I hope today that this is just a a calling card to maybe something different. What if? Okay, we gotta finish. All right, uh, verse 12. um, For now we see only a reflection is in a mirror then we shall be face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. Back in that time, a mirror was probably a piece of metal of some kind. So it's pretty unclear. You looked at yourself and you would see some version of you, but not a very clear version of you. We have much more sophisticated mirrors today. But, but even so, I think about James in James chapter one, when he says, hey, for a lot of you, um, you go look in the mirror and then you walk away and forget what you look like. For a lot of us, you're convicted by some things that you've heard this morning, but by the time you hit that door, you will have convinced yourself that everything's okay. Man, don't allow the enemy to rob you of what the Spirit wants to do in you. Verse 13, the greatest of these is love. He says, three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. So that is his final statement in chapter 13. The greatest gift that we have is love. So how does this play out in your life? Well, in your marriage, your pursuit minus love is worthless. Meaning you deciding how you want to love your spouse minus the love of God, which he informs you on how to actually love your spouse, it's worthless. In your friendships, your advice minus love 
is worthless. Some of you need to hear that today. In the name of keeping it real, you just wanna you know, drop some hard truth on people and we need the tough love. That's not, that's not in question. But where's the motivation of your heart? Is the motivation of your heart to dig? Or is the motivation of your heart to restore? People sense it. In your friendships, your advice, minus love is worthless. In your career, your giftedness, your mad skills, minus love is worthless. In our community, your Christian identity minus love is damaging to the kingdom of God. And I know there's nobody in the room that would want to do damage to the kingdom of God. Nobody. Nobody would say, I'm out to wreck God's kingdom today. So just know the way you love tells a story. In word and in action. So as we close here, two thoughts. Uh, number one, the weight of your giftedness is love. It's the weight of your giftedness. Your gift is a receptacle and, and, and God wants to pour love into it to weigh it down. Without love, it's an empty pursuit. It's just a bunch of noise. First John 4, 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God for God is love. What is John saying? If you don't love, you don't know God. You cannot say that you're a follower of Jesus and not love. Let me take it a step further. You cannot live in unforgiveness and say that you're a loving follower of Jesus. You cannot not be reconciled with another individual and call it good. In the kingdom of God, we move ruthlessly toward reconciliation. Why? Because that is what Jesus did. He reconciled all things through the cross. And it is the defining weight of your giftedness. It's love. And number two, love is not from Jesus, or love is from Jesus, not for Jesus. You're incapable of agape love apart from Jesus. If you move on in 1 John 4, verses 10 and following, it says, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. People will see God because of the way you love. And did you notice at the beginning of that passage, you didn't find Jesus. He found you. He always goes first. So you didn't stumble into faith. No, you were drawn to faith by the Holy Spirit. You were drawn to Jesus. He went first. It is his committed love. That's the picture of the cross. We're about to celebrate communion. That's the picture of the cross. On your best day, you didn't have what it take. And yet Jesus, remember the garden? He didn't want to go to the cross. He said, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other, please, any other way, but not my will, but your will. He demonstrated this agape love, this self-sacrificing love that even when he didn't want to do it, he went to the cross and it was out of this agape love. And so Jesus, we <laughs> recognize